Hi and welcome back to the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. This is episode 78 and I'm very pleased today to bring you Professor David Bishop. Hi David, how are you doing? G'day Laura. So, I mean, we're on the totally different end of the uh, time zones here. You, you guys are getting ready to go to bed and we've only just got up. So um, I do appreciate the, um, you know, your giving up your uh, time in, in this evening uh, for you. Um, but for those listeners who may or may not have um, heard um, who Professor David Bishop is, perhaps you could just give us some background as to who you are and what you're up to. Yeah, sure. So I guess a professor of sports science, applied physiology at Victoria University in Australia. I started my career as a, a sports science working with, with athletes at the Western Australian Institute of Sport. So working directly with teams that went to the Sydney Olympics. So, um, you know, hockey teams, um, beach volleyball teams, netball teams, they went at the, the Olympics, but kayak athletes as well. So had that applied experience. And since then, I've moved back into academia and still very much interested in performance, but trying to understand how it is that training can lead to muscle adaptations that will improve performance. So we do a lot of work with muscle biopsies where we look at how different types of training can affect the muscle adaptations and ultimately trying to use that information to optimize training. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, many of the people that I've had on as experts, uh, guest experts on this have similar backgrounds to you. And I like that because most listeners will be aware that my interests are um, sort of the translation of, of the rocket science into applied context. So it's really great to have researchers who also have lots of real world experience. And that's not to say that um, there is, um, you know, I'm perceiving less value in, in the researchers that spend pretty much all their time in a lab. That's necessary, of course. Um, we, we need huge amounts of, of knowledge to come on mechanisms and um, that stuff that helps inform our practice. But as we were chatting a bit offline, you know, pro part of the problem is, is people read this research, but they're unable or haven't been taught yet how to differentiate the difference between, you know, the context in which that science was undertaken and, and what the true meaning and value of that is. Um, but of course, there's huge improvements and developments in, in technologies. And um, a lot of what we um, would have assumed in the past um, by um, relating certain, you know, f findings um, um, in in the field or in our sort of more mediocre labs, um, <clears throat> you know, i.e. correlating that stuff um, is, it, you know, sort of led to a lot of what we were informed or learnt in the old days but because of these improvements in lab technologies and you know sort of work that you guys are doing for example um you know we're getting closer to more sort of causal stuff and um the reason why i wanted to talk to you was specifically uh, relating to what i've just said one of those sorts of areas is is the knowledge that surrounds um lactate or lactic acid or you know the accumulation of metabolites as a result of exercise and we start thinking about things like hydrogen ion accumulation and um, I've had guests on where we've talked about things like PGC1 alpha and all that stuff but the most well-known area here um, particularly for the students that are listening is, and the coaches and the personal trainers they'll all have heard of lactate, um, lactate or lactic acid and oftentimes we're we're sort of being told that, you know, <clears throat> the reason why your muscles burn is because of lactic acid. The, you know, the, 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 the reason why you're failing to perform um, as well as you might do is because of the accumulation of this, of this lactic acid. And it's kind of a nice um, thing that we hear. Uh, it kind of makes sense. Also, it's something we can measure in the field. We don't need some impressive molecular biology lab like you guys have got or at Liverpool John Moores or Sterling or whatever. What we're looking for is just a handheld device that can sample some blood and it helps us get a bit involved but in all of that a lot of stuff gets lost um, in the translation so that's why I want you know I want to bring on the experts like yourself to discuss these things and 
what the likes of, of um, practitioners like me should take from all that and what we can actually do in the real world. So um, just to put this back into your court then, David, um, you know, why initially or what led you initially into researching um, these sorts of areas um, as it relates to, um, you know, the impact on on performance? Sure. Yeah, I think you're spot on with, you know, one of the really great things and also one of the you know, downsides is that everyone knows about lactic acid. You know, everyone talks about building of lactic acid or the burn when they're exercising. So everyone knows about it, which sometimes can be a problem, but it also means that everyone's an expert in it. So it's a, I think it's a, it's a nice one that people can relate to. And that's probably, you know, where the research probably started was very applied. When I worked at the Western Australian Institute of Sport, and especially in Australia, the lactate threshold is used for any of your big endurance sports, you know, cycling, rowing, kayaking, etc., to assign training intensities. And so that, you know, sparked an interest in, you know, are there better ways that we can we can use this? And also, you know, just the fundamental type um, questions you know what does it actually mean this lactic acid yeah and you know before i got ready for this podcast i do my usual pre-reading and you'd sent me some papers to read and i read around the subject of of lactate and of course it's been some time since um um <clears throat> since i had learned much about um lactate uh, 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 lactate accumulation and so on and i learned a lot of things i didn't even i didn't even realize <laughs> Uh, for example, this this idea that lactic acid actually can be extremely useful in in certain scenarios. Um, so, I, I think I think what we should do then is is perhaps maybe just define a few things because often these conversations happen without any definitions. So, I'd rather the listeners didn't make assumptions about what we're talking about. Could you perhaps define for us what we're talking about when we talk about lactate or lactic acid? Yeah, and again, you're, you're spot on. I think the for anyone who's reading up on this, it's a really tricky field because on one level it's quite basic, but if you if you look through the literature, there's probably about some, probably in the vicinity of ten different lactate thresholds. So you can you can read one paper and they're talking about a a lactate threshold, and it might be you know close to you know. 70, 80, 90% of VO2 max. And then you read another paper and they're talking about lactate threshold, but it's actually a different lactate threshold or it's determined in a different way. And so it's, yeah, it might be 30, 40, 50% of VO2 max. And then you're sort of reading the two papers and you're going, hang on a second, these two guys are, you know, they've found exactly the opposite. And, and that's because, uh, you know, their reference point is completely different. So, so I say that, that you know, that would probably be the, the first thing I would say that, you know, anyone who's interested in this field, working in this field or, you know, reading, you need to really carefully look at how the, how the lactate threshold's been defined. And I think, you know, going back to basics, it should be, a, it should be where there's a, a marked change in muscle metabolism. So when you're doing an incremental exercise, if you're able to sample, or you could do it, but not many people would, would want to do it, if you could sample the muscle after every stage of your incremental test, you would see that the muscle lactate would be reasonably low and unchanging at the lower intensities. And then eventually you'll come to an intensity where there's going to be a rapid increase in the concentration of lactate in the muscle. So that's where it's going to be what's called the, that should be the muscle lactate threshold. And what that reflects is that the rate of glycolysis and the rate of entry of pyruvate into the Krebs cycle is starting to up, outstrip the ability of the mitochondria to use that pyruvate to enter the Krebs cycle and produce ATP aerobically. So that means there's like a log jam and a backup of this pyruvate, which to be dissipated will then flow towards the production of lactate. So basically, you know, just to, to summarize that again, so that's when the lactate threshold is going to be a, a rapid increase, and that's going to occur when the pyruvate can't go into the mitochondria as quickly as it's being produced. 
But that's also only half of the story because at the same time as you're producing lactate in the muscle, you're also going to be trying to remove it from the muscle into the blood. And initially that's going to happen quite freely and we have transporters in our muscle membranes that can transport the lactate from the muscle into the blood. But these transporters will ultimately become saturated or reach their maximum transport capacity. And so when that happens, the muscle, the lactate that's being produced in the muscle won't be able to be directly or transported straight away into the blood. So then it's going to start to build up in the muscle as well. So you're going to have these two events conspiring together to cause this rapid increase in muscle lactate. So the pyruvate being shuttled to lactate and at the same time the muscle the muscle lactate not being able to leave the muscle as quickly as it's produced and you know you know what i i always find interesting is when you read back on this stuff and you know uh, again actually it was james morton and graham close we were talking about them because they did the first ever podcast i did but they they really helped me uh sort of realize that old papers aren't necessarily bad papers because there's this sort of trend of, you know, don't read or cite anything that's more than 10 years old. But, you know, some of the seminal works are essential reading, which might be decades old. But as I started reading back on this stuff, you, you start coming across terms like metabolic waste products. Now, yeah. as I read the more recent stuff and you start to realize that a lot of this stuff isn't necessarily waste because it has uses in the body. There's a certain confusion, I think, out there that this accumulation of um, of, of these of this stuff, to use non-scientific terminology, um, including lactate, is perceived as a very negative thing. Is that is that a correct way of thinking about that, or do you think that's misleading? Yeah, I think yeah, that's probably one case where some of the old terminology which has gone by the wayside. So. I mean, as you point out, so we're talking about lactate here, which is slightly, which is different from the lactic acid, which is also the hydrogen ions. But it seems that, you know, rather than lactate, you know, being this, this bad guy, it's actually a way to be able to transport energy and transfer it between different systems. So, you know, the lactate can be transported out of the muscle and enter the bloodstream, and then it can then be transported to other muscles where it can then re-enter the muscle and be used to produce energy. So it's kind of a... Um, kind of a bit of an energy recycling system in the muscle but if you're producing lots of lactate you're also going to be producing lots of hydrogen ions and there's I guess you know the, the theory that the buildup of hydrogen ions is going to be one of the factors that will slow you down and um, ultimately lead to fatigue when doing high intensity exercise. Yeah and that I mean I've read a lot of papers on that by your by you and your teams and and others um we'll get back into that because that's from an applied perspective why this is really good to know about this stuff because it has profound impacts upon performance outcomes um and, and again i'm reading about this i've heard people describe these things in different ways and these sort of these metabolic byproducts as opposed to waste products can often be thought of as like a you know sort of currency um those currencies are useful in certain scenarios and can't be exchanged in others um when it comes to uh lactate um and lactic acid it, it, are there other uses for this or or is it just sort of a, a dead end that the body has to slowly get rid of or are there, are there other purposes to this stuff around the body yeah i think yeah it's not so much the uh, i guess it's a it's a byproduct but again what uh, the lactate actually the production of lactate means that you'll be able to be, keep breaking down glycogen and producing atp because if the pyruvate wasn't so as the pyruvate reaches a saturating level and can't and more of it can't enter into the Krebs cycle, it'll start to build up. And if you think like a like a traffic jam, that'll ultimately block all the way up to the first steps where glycogen and glucose are being broken down to produce energy. So by removing the pyruvate and um, converting it to lactate, that's like opening up, you know, like a little side road, side road and releasing that that traffic jam and allowing that um, that glycolysis to keep going and to keep supplying energy, so it's a it's a 
it's a pretty important um, mechanism that the muscle has to to keep producing energy even when it's producing anaerobic energy very rapidly and david so you know one of the reasons why we know so much more about lactate or at least we've all heard of it is because of course it's that thing that was more easily measured um in the past and there was lots of associations made but as i mentioned at the beginning they didn't have all the molecular lab stuff that you guys have now they weren't able to necessarily prove any sort of causal relationships could you just quickly um describe what those initial you know what those initial associations were and and, and what we now know yeah i don't know so maybe you're referring to i guess the the lactic acid type story so the lactic and the acid and yeah i try not to get too carried away with these arguments the if you wanted to be, some of the, the textbooks are, you know, definitely incorrect and they're a little bit simplistic in showing, you know, the production of one lactate molecule and one one hydrogen molecule. And, you know, technically that's not, you know, it's not correct because the, the hydrogen ions are actually being produced through through other mechanisms. But ultimately at the, at the end of the day, you're going to see around about a one-to-one production of lactate and hydrogen ions. So even though you know the like the textbook will have pyruvate and an arrow producing lactate plus one hydrogen ion, that's not that's not you know chemically correct in the reactions that are occurring in the body, but because of everything that's being broken down and all the chemical reactions that are going on, you know pretty much you know you're going to see around about one lactate and one hydrogen ion produced. Yeah. So again, as you, you know, one reads into this, um, of course, we keep coming back to mitochondria. Um, we know a lot more about mitochondria um, now. We've, I mean, I've done podcasts on topics like mitochondrial biogenesis, and that's where the whole PGC1 alpha, that was James Morton, of course. And um, I've had these discussions with people like John Hawley and, and so on. But you know, in the past, we didn't know a whole lot about mitochondria, but we now appear to know a lot more about mitochondria. I mean, what, what, why is mitochondria so important in this regard? Yeah, that's it's. Um, I mean, obviously, the mitochondria is, uh, you know, producing most of the the ATP, but it's actually a one of a you know a cool story about a conversation that I had with a coach, and we we're just talking. It was a kayak coach and. We were just talking about different types of training and just as a female coach and out of the blue she just said lactic acid destroys mitochondria (laughs) oh god oh cool i've never heard of that you know wonder where that's came from where that's come from and so you know she was adamant that some you know talking to a coach talking to a coach you know through the grapevine that you know she'd always been told that you know, too much high intensity training with a lot of lactic acid in your muscle was detrimental to your mitochondria. So that's, um, yeah, that sparked some of our recent research to, to try and look at that and see is there, is there any way that, you know, I guess, you know, the environment in the, the muscle, so whether your muscles are acidic or not, can that affect your mitochondrial adaptations? And, you know, just the way that people have looked at, you know, low carb, low train low, so low carbohydrate training, etc. You know, so the um, the that sort of environment could also, whether your muscles are acidic or not, could that actually affect your adaptations to training, specifically with respect to the mitochondria? And you know, might that you know crazy off the cuff comment from the coach actually have a, a physiological basis? Yeah, it, it's amazing actually how intuitive some people can be without realizing isn't it <laughs> yeah i mean I, th- I can't remember i think yeah her yeah actual words um i still remember it it was like you know 1999 or something so yeah she said lactic acid destroys mitochondria and so you know jumped on google and kept search and couldn't find anything but you know as, as i said some of our you know recent research and also that of others is is starting to suggest that you know there may actually be something in that so, you know, when we when we start thinking about this accumulation of, of lactate um, and lactic 
acid, of course, and I know, I know they often get confused. You know, we hear people talking about the burn and, you know, that's the point at which performance starts to deteriorate, shall we say. What, I mean, what is the actual role that this has in in performance? I guess, you know, I, I know this is quite a big topic because we could, like you've done a lot of work with repeated uh, sprint exercise type stuff. Um, but, what, I mean, what is the relevance to this to performance itself? Yeah, so I think, and we start to, you know, it gets into a pretty tricky area because there's some people, I guess, uh, will argue that either it's exaggerated or that the, the pH of the muscle doesn't actually affect, um, doesn't affect performance. But I think, you know, a lot of the, yeah, unless it's another mechanism, which is also what other people have suggested, I think, you know, most of the bicarbonate literature is pretty consistent that if you're doing, if you're doing very high intensity exercise, you know, between sort of one and six minutes or so, that you can improve that type of performance by taking bicarbonate. And, you know, obviously it could be, there could be other ways that that bicarbonate is working. But one thing in that we know that bicarbonate does do is it, makes the blood more basic so less acidic and what that then does creates a, a greater concentration gradient so that lactate and hydrogen ions can move out of the muscle more quickly and presumably therefore minimize some of the um, the negative effects that that the acid is having on the muscle and there's been lots of theories over the over the years from the production of anaerobic energy so if you give if you give bicarbonate, there's been some nice studies in Canada showing that you'll use more anaerobic energy, you'll break down more glycogen, and you'll actually produce more lactate for the same change in, in pH. There's other, the excitation contraction coupling seems to be affected by by um, hydro, by um, the, the pH of the muscle and also <coughs> the, um, the membrane excitability as well. So, and also some evidence that maybe there might be some feedback centrally that may also affect the um, central motor drive as well. So there's lots of potential mechanisms, but when you, you know, when you start to doing integrative physiology with a, with a whole human exercising, trying to tease out exactly what's happening is pretty tricky. Actually, uh, as you said that, you made me. You, you mentioned about human, and um, I think it's worth discussing the fact that a lot of research, of course, is done on animal models. Um, you know, and, and there are there are some people that will go, well, you know, how relevant actually is that to the human model? What, what are your thoughts on that? I think it's like a. It's like um, I was going to a bit like what you said before. You know, I think there's a different place for different types of research and. I think it's a you know a bit like the old you know healthy healthy eating eating pyramid, you know I think you need all of that and you need to be able to put it together. So you need you need people who are doing you know molecular research on humans. You need people who are doing you know mechanistic research on animals, and you need people who are you know working in the field and trying these things directly on elite athletes. And hopefully you put all that together. And if you're getting you know a consistent story from all those different models and all those different types of research, then I think that's when you're probably onto something good. Yeah, and, the, you know, the, re the reason why I'm asking that, obviously, is that's something that comes up in debate. But as a practitioner myself, um, I'm, all, I'm, I'm interested in the research that I'm reading and I'm trying to decide how applicable that is to the athletes that I work with. And that makes me think of another fact. In fact, I was giving a lecture the other day about this. And... Um, a lot of people like to discuss this idea of the hierarchy of um, evidence and, um, you know, at the top end of that hierarchy or that pyramid is, you know, randomised control studies, that sort of thing. And fairly near the bottom is this idea of um, case studies not being particularly strong evidence. But I feel very strongly about the value of a case study. As I mentioned off air, I'm interested in a lot of this stuff because it evokes... Um, a great deal of knowledge, which is sort of a, a Pandora's box for for researchers. You know, so many things are learnt about what actually happens in the real world. But one thing I find of particular interest is this idea that um, 
Elite athletes don't usually volunteer for research, particularly whereby you're sticking um, biopsy needles in their legs. Um, and there's a big difference between an elite athlete and someone who typically does actually volunteer for those sorts of studies. In terms of how we translate that science as it, to re as it relates to this sort of area, because presumably there's a, there's a difference in how well-trained an individual is as it um, compared to um, you know a non-elite athlete and of course the uh, again when we talk about elite athletes there's characteristics to an elite athlete that that may be more genetic uh, freakish if you like about that elite athlete um, um, hopefully I didn't sort of get too lost in what I'm trying to say but what, what are your thoughts in that? No, again I think you're spot on and I think that's where yeah I think that's where you're looking for the the cumulative evidence. I think you're right. You know, a case study can give you really good information, but yeah, I think I don't think you want to. You wouldn't want to rely on you know just one person's experience to you know to change the whole training for your squad. But yeah, it can give you good evidence. It can give you further research ideas. And yeah, like I said before, you know, just a, a chat with a with a coach. You know, saying something off the cuff might lead you in a different direction, and I think it's a, you know, you can see athletes who do very different things, and and what works for one athlete may not work for another. So that's where I think, yeah, like I said, you wouldn't rely on yeah a case study, but equally you wouldn't rely on on an animal study to completely change your training. But like I said, I think if you had, yeah, you know, if if you had if you had a case study that you know, there was an ath an athlete was using approach an approach that seemed to be working really well, and that matched up with you know some results that someone had done on well trained people, and maybe they'd also looked at the muscle and saw some mechanisms which lined up with what the what the athlete was saying. And if you also had you know maybe some result research in in animals which was you know more controlled and being able to highlight some of those mechanisms, and again. And it was all supporting each other. That's when I think, that's when I think you've got a um, something really nice and some evidence that you can have a little bit of confidence in. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. The, the reason why I was mentioning that mainly was is there's the assumption of how applicable, you know, the findings of a of a study are to anyone, um, <laughs> and <laughs> and they're not. Um, and it's merely just a case of just you just need to think. You know, um, that's why I, I, I always talk about context throughout this podcast is because context is important. The context in which that study was done, just think, is that really applicable or relevant? Because um, there's so many other things that athlete has to do. <laughs> they've got their training. They've got their life. They've probably got families. They've got stresses like everyone else. They've got travel schedules. Um, their um, skills-based training may be more important than you know, your nutritional intervention or what they're doing on a Monday, uh, you know, is different from what you might be trying to achieve on game day on a Friday or Saturday. Yeah, no, exactly. So that's where I think, yeah, it's also, I said, you can get good information from it, but I think, you know, that's why, you know, we're doing this more. And I think there's a, a big trend in the, in the, in the field as well is to start looking more at the individual data. Now, if you go back, to a lot of um, you know studies 10 or 20 years ago and even recently you'll just see sort of the mean and standard deviation but now you know a lot of our stuff we're trying to publish all the individual results and you go through and you go hang on a second you know these people didn't particularly respond that well to this type of training but there's this one person who's gone absolutely through the roof you know what is it about that person that that allows them to to respond differently to everyone else you know obviously first checking to see if it's just some sort of error in your methodology. But once you've ruled that out, you go, okay, so for some, for some individuals, you know, in the right circumstances, this type of training or this type of nutrition or this type of you know, skill work or whatever can be really powerful. And I think that's where we're going to start and see, I think, more and more interesting results when we start to treat our... Um, the people who participate in our studies as as individual as individuals rather than than just a mean. No, it's it's good to hear that, and I, I've had these conversations with various people before, where 
it would be it would be great if we could see more you know more studies publishing the actual data so that you know you can see for example how many outliers there were because i might well be my athlete might be that outlier um i don't want to assume that you know the mean you know covers everyone and i might i might as a practitioner i might disregard that as a potential tool in my toolbox of interventions when um there were a few people that actually did do amazingly on it and and um, that's something that i should be considering which i may have done if i'd seen the data in that study yeah we've got a really what well, i think some pretty cool data we're trying to publish at the moment but we're looking at um altitude it wasn't altitude training it was living at altitude and we're looking at changes in in mitochondrial function just by living at altitude and when it was kind of a bit disappointed when you looked at the the mean data pretty much nothing happened but then when we started to look at the individuals and we also looked at tried to track individuals we had three individuals who had a had a big increase in their mitochondrial function and those same three individuals were the only ones who had an increase in pgc1 alpha protein in their muscle and a few other proteins as well so when you look at it it was obviously okay some people do get the molecular response that we expected and those people also get the functional changes that we would anticipate as well so it sometimes reviewers don't like that and it can make things difficult to to publish but i think that's um that's where a lot of the for me anyway i think that's where the most interesting research is happening when we start to look at individual differences yeah couldn't agree more so bringing bring us back to what we're discussing then you know this idea that um activity produces um, metabolic byproducts and uh, that includes things like the accumulation of metabolites and hydrogen ions and um, the, you know lactate and this accumulation of lactic acid what you know where in what scenarios are we really going to be interested in this because presumably just going for a walk these things to a certain extent are going on but they're not going to limit performance per se what at what point are we going to want to start thinking about this and then thinking about our interventions to modify this situation yeah i mean i think i've got sort of two main interests in it one is whether we can actually use it to prescribe training so you know obviously even like you were saying right at the beginning with the blood lactate it's really easy to find out where someone's blood lactate threshold is and get them to train above or at or below or, you know, or long way below, or long way above or whatever. But does it actually have any, you know, does it have any relevance? Is it, you know, if I train 10% above the lactate threshold versus 10% below the lactate threshold, is that going to make any difference to the adaptations I'm going to get? So that's where we're doing some researches at the moment trying to don't know, answer that question but get closer to answering that question on whether whether we can actually use these lactate breakpoints and whether lactate changes rapidly in either the muscle or the blood to prescribe training and to also get better training responses so we don't really have a have an answer to that at the moment and i think you know, as I said at the beginning, also a lot of the sports in the more sort of endurance sports in Australia do base a lot of their training around the lactate threshold. And even if it's not super important whether you're 10% above or 10% below the lactate threshold, what it does allow you to do is to, I guess, um, to prescribe and also monitor your training a little bit more precisely. So we'll normally get five or six zones. So with that, you'll be able to see, okay, I spend 20% of my training here, 10% training here. I've got good results when I've had this distribution of training across the lactate threshold. So like I said, even if we don't completely understand what is the best way to train, I, I think it still has value as a, as a nice way to, in a more scientific way to 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 um, quantify the, the training that you're doing. Absolutely. And, you know, you, you've mentioned it earlier, and, of course, one reads about the mechanisms behind lactate accumulation and, and um, 
that brings us to the to the point that when the body is to keep this simple is burning carbohydrates as a fuel for exercise one of the byproducts of that is is this lactate um so the you know one of the really popular things right now um and i'm, I'm not asking um, um whether it's the right approach or not but this relationship between um well this 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 trend to go low carbohydrate, particularly for improving um, uh, endurance uh, capabilities, i.e. improving um, efficiency as it relates to um, using higher levels of, of uh, or increasing fat oxidation, sparing glycogen potentially. You know, there's a relationship there to this accumulation of lactate. And of course, um, if it is involved or related to um, that scenario that inhibits ultimate performance, which even someone who's, who's running a marathon, they've still got sprint finishes, hill climbs, the things that can make the difference to their overall time. What you know? What what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, it's really interesting because I asked uh, at a conference, and I actually asked Louise Burke something similar because she was talking about some of the the training with low carbohydrates and no one's really looked at it, but it's actually an interesting idea is that one of the things that will happen if you've got low carbohydrate in your muscle, then you will produce less lactate and less lactic acid during, um, during training. So if, you know, as, um, I was telling you in the earlier that that coach is right, that lactic acid destroys mitochondria, then if you're able to do a similar power output, but, produce less lactic acid, then potentially that could help to explain some of the findings in the literature where they've seen some some positive endurance adaptations from from training low. So it may not be the only the only reason. There's going to be other things that will that having low carbohydrate will affect during training, but that could be part of the um, the explanation as to why some people have found some some positive effects from the training training with low carbohydrate strategy. Yeah, I, and the reason why I, I mention that is because um, I've recently finished a, a case study on an elite triathlete where we were periodizing carbohydrate intake, and <coughs> excuse me, what we observed was some really nice improvements in body composition and. There were increased rates of fat oxidation and so on. But what I did notice was it seemed to um, reduce the um, rate of increase of lactate accumulation. But because we were periodizing his carbohydrates, we were also able to do threshold training sessions in a fed carbohydrate fed state. So there was a degree of um, you know, training the, the lactate threshold as well. So it sort of seemed to me like a best of both worlds. And... It, I, I'm assuming this drives you nuts as well, but there's this sort of either-or mentality, very black and white. We, we don't necessarily have these conversations from the point of view of, of there's many ways to skin a cat. And, you know, strength and conditioning people talk about periodization all the time, but they really talk about that in nutrition. Um, and maybe it's a case of there are there are days definitely to train low and then there's days to train high and, and one additional argument beyond the whole improving metabolic efficiency and metabolic flexibility and all those terms that are now coming up but is this idea of its impact on lactate as well yeah and i think um I, it's a, a nice paper by um stephen sealer which i i still i like published quite a few years ago but where he talks about the the polarized type training so, yeah, I think, you know, there's never going to be a magic type of training where you go, if you, apart from being super boring, it's not going to be the, the best way. There's not going to be one way to train. And he sort of talks about, you know, athletes doing a lot of low intensity train, or these are rowers, I think, um, doing lots of low intensity training and then also doing some very high intensity training and not doing very much in the middle. And so... And some of our recent work would kind of support that. We just, um, my PhD student, Cesare Granada, just published a paper in FASEB journal. And we looked at that type of training. And what we saw was that the really high intensity sprint, you know, classic sprint interval type training was really good for improving your mitochondrial function. 
but the really low or the not really low but lower intensity high volume training was much better for improving mitochondrial content so i think you know coming back to almost like the you know the healthy diet pyramid again yeah you're going to be needing to train in those different lactate threshold zones to hit different physiological adaptations which are all going to contribute to an improved performance sure so to bring this sort of to the more um sort of field-based uh, real-world practitioners and coaches out there who don't have hands-on um, to a you know molecular lab and biopsies and all that stuff and we're not going to be able to measure you know um, things like mitochondrial mass and um, PGC1 alpha and all that stuff you know what we can get our hands on though is um, a handheld di device for measuring lactate from an applied perspective where do you see the use of of those devices in a in a sort of sports science strength and conditioning setting yeah i don't know if, don't know if i'll take you a little bit off track here but i think what's something <laughs> i think something that's really exciting you know is going to be with the you know like the the wearables type revolution i think one of the the limitations of lactate has always been the machine and taking the blood and stopping exercise and you know i remember working with kayak athletes when i was bobbing up and down in a, a little motorboat trying to grab their ear while they were bobbing up <laughs> and down in a kayak and you know trying to get a blood sample to measure their lactate but um where i'm going is i think you know we now have real-time glucose monitoring where people have a little patch on their belly and mm. you know people who are diabetics etc where they can do you know, real-time glucose monitoring. So I think once, I think, I mean, I'm a big believer in the utility of, of lactate for for monitoring and prescribing training. So I think what we will see in the near future, and I've seen a few companies sort of toying with this, is some sort of real-time lactate monitoring. So you don't need to stop and prick the finger or the earlobe. And, you know, once once they get some good methodology for doing that, then I think you may find that um, yeah, some of the lactate monitoring may go the way of the heart rate monitor where it becomes becomes a, a tool that athletes will use a lot more like a lot more often to prescribe their training, to prescribe their warm up recovery and things like that. Do you know, actually, that's a really good point. I'm, I'm pleased you mentioned it because that's something in my in my own lab that we've we've really you know gone to town to develop some skills to be able to actually sample lactate um um with our running test that we do you know it's quite easy to do on the bike because they're just pedaling away they just stick a digit out keep pedaling and we can sample blood or from the ear or, or whatever but when you've got uh, we have a lot of um uh, competitive triathletes and um football or soccer players that come in so we do a lot of um, treadmill based testing on those guys and they're sprinting away well the only way you can realistically take a sample is they have to stop temporarily and of course there's an element of time um, that goes beyond the time it takes to test on on the bike and of course that makes you realize well a lot of people that are out there testing for this stuff aren't actually testing properly and they they're unaware of the pitfalls and inaccuracies of those various testing methods because the you know the accuracy and the repeatability of of this stuff becomes an issue in fact the previous podcast of this was all about body composition and issues that relate to accuracy and validity and repeatability of everything from dexa to bob pod and skin folds and bia and all that stuff but you know it, it, when it comes to blood testing it's one of those things where as soon as a it's a blood test and you see digits on a screen it's automatically assumed to be cast iron accurate but it, it, it might not be and that then takes us to the understanding that a lot of the testing that we're doing whether it's done in not so well conducted studies or whether in the field we're not doing the testing properly that information is incorrectly informing our our prescriptions our advice our, our training isn't it yeah, and a lot of those, I mean, I've used it quite a, quite extensively, but yeah, a lot of those handheld devices there, they're pretty good for low-level lactates, but so if you're doing low-intensity training, but if you start getting up into, you know, higher lactates, even even not super high, you know, even sort of five, six, seven, eight millimoles, then the, the accuracy starts to become a little bit, 
a little bit more questionable. So, so I think you're spot on. And then it's, you know, whether you're squeezing the the finger and you know, getting some of the the lactate out of the you know the lymphatic system, or whether you're got sweat on there, which also contains lactate. So the there's a lot of things that can can lead to inaccuracies. And just because you've got you know one or two decimal places doesn't mean that it's a, it's a it's an accurate number. I do, yeah. It's, I, I mean, I, I don't know about you, David, but I'm a real gadget man. I love gadgets. I got like every, you know, I've got all the digital devices. I got, I just love that stuff, and I love apps and so on. But, I, I, you know, one forgets that the accuracy of these things isn't so great. In fact, you know, you talk about wearables. You know, those devices that count steps and calories and heart rate. We, um, we did a, a, a collaborative study with a. Um, uh, a major magazine where they brought in these gadgets and then we they were estimating how many calories you burn and then we we um at the same time were doing metabolic testing and um <laughs> they were quite inaccurate actually um but it's that sort of persona of a device um and the need to have that device and and the role that that plays in the things that you know coaches and sports scientists do and and the reason why I'm mentioning this is is although that's necessary for the studies, the mechanistic studies or the tightly controlled studies, how how important, until we have really good technology, how important is that? Or are there other ways that we can go about maybe estimating uh, things like lactate accumulation without actually testing lactate? What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I don't know if it's my, you know, my bias, but I... I like to measure things accurately, and I, I think one of the um, one of the concerns I sometimes have is that you know the basis of the lactate threshold is that there's something happening in the muscle, so that you know we're getting a buildup of lactate in the muscle, and then what we do is we indirectly measure it in the blood, and assuming that you know a change in lactate in the blood is reflecting a change in the muscle, which is probably not a particularly good assumption to make anyway but anyway we might do that in the blood and then we go okay these changes in the in what's happening in the the blood are going to affect respiration and then we're going to get a ventilatory threshold okay let's use the ventilatory threshold as an indirect measure of our blood lactate which is an indirect measure of our of our muscle lactate and i think once you get to once you get too many steps removed, I think there's there's a real concern about whether you're whether you're actually measuring what you what you started out to measure. So, yeah, I'm not a big fan of. I know for the it's good for ease of use and and things like that, but yeah, I'm not a big fan of indirect measures. What I like with the lactate threshold to to use is, I prefer to use the 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 running speed or the power output or you know, whatever you're using the actual work measurement. So do a nice, well-controlled lactate threshold measurement in the laboratory, work out the the running speed for the different training zones, and then you can get people working out at those, at the prescribed running speed, at the, at the prescribed running speeds to, to be in the appropriate training zone. That way you sort of take the, the handout device or the indirect measure of lactate out of it and you're working directly on the the work or power measure yeah that, that's a nice nice concept that where you sort of validate your protocol in the lab and then take it out into the field um i mean our our, our sort of motto at guru performance in our lab that we've got in london is uh, um um don't test sorry don't don't guess test you know yeah um it is amazing how it doesn't matter how high tech your guesswork is whether it's you know using some app to determine your resting metabolic rate or you know a step test or whatever for vo2 max it is it is at best an estimate and 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 i think better phrased a guesstimate <laughs> i think like you said i mean I'm, i mean i'm a bit like you as well i mean the gadgets and the apps and it's easy to get sort of caught up in how cool they are you know i've got a little app on my my iPhone that um, that measures heart rate. I've never actually looked whether it's good or not, but I'm just going, wow, this is cool. My iPhone can measure heart rate. But 
and it is cool that it can do it, but the more important thing is can it do it accurately? So I think, yeah, trying to get beyond the cool factor and getting back to, you know, is this accurately measuring what I want it to measure? Yeah, I mean, you know, just to bear in mind that many of our listeners are sports science graduates and students and S&C coaches and, and we have PTs as well working in the more general population, you know. I mean, at the end of the day, lactate is something that, that can be measured reasonably accurately in the field as long as you're doing it properly, I guess, is one of our messages, isn't it? And therefore, you need to learn how to do it properly. I mean, what what... Over and above being taught properly in in university, um, are, are there any recommendations you would have for people to learn how to do this stuff properly? No, I think it's one of the. Um, it's actually you know reasonably easy, and I sort of I went through some of the things before. I think you know the the main thing is that you that you're sampling correctly and not getting it contaminated. So you know if they're if you're squeezing a finger or if there's a lot of sweat, those things can affect your affect your lactate measurements. But I think, yeah, and you can use it, I think, as a, if I was measuring lactate in the, in the lab, I'd be using it more as a, as a rough check, that thing that people are training at the intensity that I want them to train with. As I said before, I think I prefer to rely on the, on the work or power measurement as to to set my training and then beyond that using occasionally the the lactate meters in the in the field just to just to confirm that you know people are in the ballpark training zones that i expect them to be in so just to you know we're getting towards the end here and i mean this is a topic that we could spend two years at university on obviously (laughs) so so um it's always a challenge to get into the the, the meat of this stuff in in, a, in an hour's podcast but um you know one one of the areas that i was reading a lot into in your work in this sort of area is very much about the relevance of training intensity itself um as it relates to you know the adaptations we're we're hoping to get just to briefly end on this topic then um rather than just going out and hammering it on the tread treadmill or going for um you know, high intensity interval training, for example, is extremely popular. Um, the relevance of the intensity itself, because that has a that's related to much of what we talked about today. Um, what what are what have what have your conclusions been on that? Yeah, I think kind of um, yeah, I guess a couple of con- or preliminary conclusions, I would say, because I think this is going to be ongoing beyond me. My my kids might have to continue it. But um, I think that there's not going to be one magic intensity. So I think, you know, going, going, um, hitting different intensities, I think is important because you can get different adaptations with different intensities. And we've seen that with lots of different muscle work that we've done where, you know, low intensity training, as I said, might be really good for um, improving your mitochondrial content. And you can also improve your some of your lactate transporters, but you need to do higher intensity training to be able to improve your mitochondrial function and to also improve different lactate transporters. And then we've actually seen that if you train too intensely, you can also get a decrease in in things like your muscle buffer capacity, which is important for for buffering the hydrogen ion. So I don't know if it's a a wishy-washy answer, but that... I think you know you need to hit different training zones to to get different adaptations. So obviously, not only interval training or not only you know lower intensity continuous training. One thing that we're really interested in at the moment, and I think you know the evidence is probably not quite there yet, but I've seen some. There's um, this argument that not training too much at the lactate threshold. So doing prolonged training where you've got quite high lactate, lactic acid levels in your muscle doesn't seem to be a great approach. And, you know, we've shown some stuff that if you do that, the lactic acid can interfere with some of the mitochondrial signaling. And you're talking about classic papers as well. There's a nice paper out of Sweden from Soden back in 1982. And they found that the, the people who 
did the same sort of training, but the the athletes who had the lowest lactate levels during training tended to get the best improvements in the lactate threshold at the end of the, the training block. So as I said, that's we're looking at that at the moment and I can't be super confident, but I'm starting to go that way that I think prolonged training with high levels of lactic acid in your muscle is going to hurt, but it also is probably not going to produce um, great adaptations. No, that's great. That wasn't wishy-washy at all. I, I mean, I've explored this with all sorts of people, and um, I've had Martin Gibala on about high-intensity interval training, for example. And, <coughs> excuse me. I, I think, you know, one thing that comes out of this is, it, it, you know, I, I think personal preference is important, isn't it? it, it one should not assume that um, there's there's only one way to do it. I mean, consistency and, you know, somebody actually who keeps doing this stuff is likely to get a more significant outcome than someone who blasts it for a week or two and then totally crashes, <laughs> um, yeah. which is so often the case, particularly in the recreational athlete area. You know, people get very fixed into one way of doing things. And I think also, you know, we're obviously focusing on, on physiology, but, you know, there's all psychology and other factors there. And, you know, after, you know, we published our recent paper, showing how good sprint interval training was for your for your mitochondrial function i started doing introducing some sprint interval training into my own um weekly workouts and it's bloody hard work yeah and you have to be, you have to be mentally strong just uh you know to keep going for 30 seconds when you're just waiting for the alarm to you know on the stopwatch to go off and just praying that it's coming quickly so i think yeah there's also an argument that that type of um yeah, for someone who's not, you know, maybe mentally strong, then maybe they need that sort of training just to build up their resilience as well. So I think, um, you know, I'm not a psychologist, but I think we need to forget that there's reasons for training that also go beyond the, the physiological adaptations that we're looking for. No, absolutely. And um, I know most of the listeners um, who've been listening for a while are going to groan, but context obviously is important because somebody who's uh, overweight and unfit, even going for a a light jog is high intensity uh, to them, um, whereas a you know a, a sprint is probably going to kill them. <laughs> so uh, um, I think that one must always bear in mind who we're actually inflicting these recommendations on. And I think you know one of the things you know coming back to the lactic acid as well is that one of the you know the interesting things is that you know athletes that are really um, endurance trained don't produce a lot of lactic acid when, uh, even if they're doing high intensity exercise. So you, you'll see them and you get them in and yeah, they just don't, they just don't get very high lactic acid levels. So, you know, putting together some of our research, it, it may be that those sort of athletes who, who don't produce a lot of lactic acid can get more benefit from the sprint interval training because they're doing that high intensity work, but at the same time, they, they're not going to be producing as much lactic acid level as someone else. So, I think uh, you know sometimes it seems like the you know the research doesn't uh, agree, but putting some of the things that's happening together, I think that may be that may be part of the context is that endurance trained athletes may get more benefit from sprint interval training than um, than more anaerobic athletes. Well, that was a great way to end the podcast. Actually, um, we're out of time, so uh, thank you very much for your time, David. I know it's getting relatively late in the evening now so you, you'll have a bit of downtime i hope after all this uh talking about nerdy stuff um but for folks that want to learn more about you and what you're up to on the uh, notes um on the page for this podcast on, on uh, my website i'll put some links to your research gate and a couple of papers that I feel irrelevant uh, to our topic today. But um, if they want to um, follow you on Twitter, what would your Twitter handle be? Yeah, so Twitter is at Blue Spot Science. And um, yeah, that's it. And then, your, and then your website, I'll link to all these as well, But your and then your department website. Yeah, I'm not even sure what it is, but I'm at the Institute of Sport, Exercise and Active Living at Victoria University. And, and on Twitter, I think I've got a, I've got a link to the okay. to our university as well. Yeah, brilliant. Well, if I, um, I'll I'll link to it via our website. So, um, but anyway, that I really appreciate your time and um, talking to me today. 
Um, if uh, folks want to learn more about this sort of stuff, um, at Guru Performance uh, Institute, we've developed a continuing professional development program in exercise science and performance nutrition. You can check that out under short courses on our website. Um, if you want to get more into performance nutrition, you might be interested in our ISSN Diploma in Applied Sport and Exercise Nutrition, which is a one to two year program. Um, or, or indeed, if you want to come and do uh, a Master of Science in Sport and Exercise Nutrition with me at the University of Middlesex, um, you can check out information relating to all of that at our website and, of course, on previous podcasts and other stuff we do at guruperformance.com. Um, I, of course, am Laurel Bannock and uh, will be bringing another podcast back to you very soon.